you open your Bibles to Matthew 4, we are in our series in eschatology, and we've been working through the Olivet Discourse, and today we're going to be dealing with verses 29 through 51, and the title is, Ready or Not, Christ is Coming. So, Matthew chapter 24 Beginning in verse 15, hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Excuse me, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heaven, heavens to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. It would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at their proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we confess our neediness and our inability to understand your word apart from your spirit. And so, Lord, would you please open your word to us and help us to understand what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the past couple of weeks, we've worked through what is absolutely one of the most complicated passages in all of the Bible. And you know it's one of the most complicated passages in all the Bible because we've seen there are various interpretations that are offered by 
varying scholars, fine Christian scholars who disagree on exactly what's going on here and what the proper interpretation of this text is, which should do a couple of things for us. First of all, it should give us great pause. Secondly, it should give us a great sense of humility and a great sense of of patience with those who may come to differing conclusions on what these glorious verses are teaching us here from our Lord's mouth. Now, I have uh, taken, as I've worked through this text, I've taken what I think is pretty much agreed upon to be the most common view amongst Reformed scholars, and that is this. Jesus is responding to two questions by his disciples. The two questions are, when will the temple be destroyed, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, those two questions, when will the temple be destroyed, and when will this, what's the sign of the, of the end of the age, for the disciples, it's really one question, because they could not conceive of how it is that the temple is destroyed, and that must mean it is the end of the age. And so Jesus, in this text, in part, he corrects that misunderstanding, but he does so in a way that's very common, I think, with prophets. That is, he gives double references, and he weaves through the narrative here. He weaves through the narrative together, yet keeping distinct what will happen in that generation in terms of the temple's destruction and what will happen at the second coming of Christ. And so what what we've seen is, so far, is that the destruction of the temple, which would happen in 70 A.D., is a paradigm of what will happen at the end of time with the second coming of Christ. And there's application for Christians all through history. Now, in verses 1 through 28, we've seen those connections between what would happen in that generation with the destruction of the temple and what would happen throughout the entire age up to the second coming of Christ. And now, I think we come to what I think is the most difficult portion of the passage yet to interpret. As as hard as it's been before, I would say this is the most difficult portion of the text for us to really navigate through. So I'm going to be spending being looking at a lot of different verses, so we're going to be a little more methodical this morning as we work through this, this part of this, the Olivet Discourse. And what we discover is, is that Jesus, again, he weaves together what's going to happen in that generation with what's going to happen at the end of the age, only I believe there's a greater focus now on the second coming of Christ at the end of the age and our need to be ready, our need to be ready. And so the main idea we're going to look at this morning is this. We must be ready because King Jesus will return at a time that no one knows. Three points we're going to look at here. First of all, Jesus foretells his return in the destruction of the temple. Now, In verses 25 through 28, Jesus had warned, as he had done earlier in the passage, that there were going to be false Christs and false prophets who would come. They would say, look, he's in the wilderness, or look, he's in these inner rooms. And Jesus says, here's a surefire way that you know that those are false. When I return, every eye will know. 
It'll be like lightning that's, that, that cracks the sky or like the vultures that are in the air and they're hovering over the corpse. Everyone will know when I return. So somebody's telling you he's over here, he's over there in this localized place, you know that that's not true. And so now in verses 29 through 31, we see this passage here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Surely that is talking about the second coming of Christ, right? Well, not so fast, young Jedi. <laughs> That is definitely the majority view of how this is seen, but there are many fine Christian scholars who stop and say, let's think about this a little more carefully here about exactly what's going on. And these scholars say that what this has to do is, is not with the second coming of Christ, but with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Well, how in the world can that be? Well, it talks about the distress of those days. The distress of those days, according to these scholars, is the time leading up to the destruction of the temple. And so you see the language of the sun darkened and the moon not giving its light and the stars falling from the sky and the powers of the heavens shaken and all these, this, this upheaval here. And so, building... Jesus here in that verse is quoting from Isaiah 13.10. This is a prophecy that was directed against Babylon, and it says here, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will, will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And so the idea is, is that this is language that's used to speak of a, a upheaval, political upheaval. Not a literal sense of the stars and all these things are, are going to do what it says here. But it's meant to show a great political and social upheaval. And, of course, the judgment at this, here in Isaiah 13 was being directed towards Babylon. And then we see the sign of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Surely that refers to Jesus' second coming, right? It, it seems clear that it does. But again, Jesus is quoting from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And where does he go to? Well, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And it goes on to talk about how he was given a kingdom and dominion, an everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed. And so what we have here is, is not a reference, according to these scholars, is not a reference to the return of Christ, but the enthronement of Christ. Christ, when he died on the cross and paid the full penalty for our sins, he rose bodily from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven in a cloud. And now he's seated on the throne. He's enthroned in heaven. And so we see that in Daniel 7.13, this enthronement in heaven. And that enthronement in heaven would be known, particularly well known, at the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Well, what about the sending of the angels to gather the elect? They will, he will send out his angels with, 
with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. Well, the word angels can mean messengers. And so the idea is to gather the elect is the idea is the messengers, and the messengers here, the primary messengers, Jesus has told us in verse 14 that we are to go and proclaim the gospel as a word of testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so the idea is the church goes out and proclaims the gospel, and God is bringing his elect to faith from all over the world. Now, as much as I find to be intriguing with that interpretation, and there's a lot that I would say is valid with it, I nevertheless do not think it is the best understanding of this portion of the passage. And if we get our minds around this, I think it's helpful for us to go and look at the other portions of the, the Gospels that speak of the Olivet Discourse. And so we have Matthew here, we have Luke, Mark and Luke, they each give the, 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 uh, uh, the account of the Olivet Discourse of Jesus and what he said. In each version, you have slight differences because it's just filling out the full picture of what Jesus said. And when we go to Luke's gospel, we see the things that Jesus said there, which is part of the Olivet Discourse. There's some things I think help us get our minds around about what's going on here. And so verse 24, you see, Luke chapter 21, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. That is clearly talking about what would happen in 70 A.D. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What is that talking about? That's the entire period of time from Christ's ascension to the second coming of Christ. And then in verses 25 through 28, we see similar things here. That, Luke, that Jesus says, that you see the connections there, there in Matthew and our text. And I think what's helpful here is you see, I think, a very neat and, and clear order that Luke gives us. And it goes like this. First of all, there's the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the scattering of the Jews. This happened in 70 A.D. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the time is fulfilled. That is all of history until the return of Christ. Third, at the end of the tribulation of those days, the tribulation of those days is all of history from Christ's first coming to his second coming. That is days of distress. This age, there will be cosmic upheaval on the whole earth because of Christ's coming to usher in the age to come. And then fourth, the nations, the earth, not just Jerusalem, will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory. And so I think that helps us a little bit to get our, our minds around this, to see why I think the majority of scholars would say this is talking about the second coming of Christ. And so we go back to Matthew now, and we see here, verse 29, after the tribulation of those days, the tribulation of those days, again, is talking about the entire period of time from Christ's ascension to his second coming. These are days of suffering. You will be hated by all. They persecuted me. They hated me. They're going to hate you. They're, you will be persecuted. After those days, 
cosmic upheaval, the cosmic upheaval spoken of in Isaiah 13 will happen. The sun will be darkened, etc. But notice with this prophecy in Isaiah 13. Going back to verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord. Cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will break, will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish who? The world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. In the Bible, Babylon, there's always, again, prophets will often have a double reference. There was a reference that's, that was definitely for Babylon in that day, but Babylon at the time of Jesus didn't even exist. And so there's clearly a double reference here, and Babylon is often used as another word just for the world in general. And so the ultimate fulfillment is the day of the Lord when he brings judgment upon the world. This will bring about a cosmic upheaval spoken of in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. As we're trying to understand these things, we're trying to understand the Old Testament, the ultimate interpreter of Scripture is Scripture, and if you want to understand what's going on in the Old Testament, you've got to interpret those things through the lens of the New Testament. And so 2 Peter 3, 10, Peter says, but the day of the Lord, there's that language again, will come like a thief, We've heard that as well in our passage. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Sounds very familiar to what Jesus is saying here. And then in verse 30, <clears throat> will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Some say, well, that's not, that, that tribes of the earth could be translated as tribes of the land, and so it's with reference to the Jews in the land at that time, but that's really not the best interpretation or the best translation. The best translation is all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Not just Jerusalem, but the whole world will see the sign of the Son of Man, and Jesus here is combining two prophecies, a prophecy in Daniel 7, which we read earlier, and also in Zechariah. But with the one in Daniel 7, notice again, here he comes in the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's ultimately going to be fulfilled in the age to come when Christ comes to consummate his kingdom. But that raises the question then, and then we see here with Zechariah, again, they will look on me on him whom they have pierced. Remember, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Who else could that possibly be talking about? But what is the sign of the coming of the Son of Man? Well, it's coming on clouds of heaven. Where do we get that? Does the New Testament help us with understanding what this means? And it does. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Not some eyes in a localized place. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail 
on account of him, they will wail. We will all of, all of humanity will wail. Why? Because he was pierced for our sin. And so, verse 31, he will send out his angel, angels with a loud trumpet call. A loud trumpet call. And he'll gather his elect from one end of heaven to the, to, to the other. That ties in wonderfully with what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Corinthians 15, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That can only refer to the end of time when Christ returns. It can only refer to that. Matter of fact, so profound is this passage in 1 Thessalonians that Greg Beal in his commentary in 1 Thessalonians says that Paul was actually just, he was using Matthew 24, referencing Matthew 24, which raises questions about, well, when exactly was the Gospel of Matthew written? Was it written much earlier than what we supposed? But the point is, you see the connections, how the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, interprets these things for us. Now, there's still doubt whether or not this is talking about the second coming of Christ, Going back to Luke now, 21, that portion of Scripture ends with this. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. That's language that can only apply to the last day. And again, the rest of the New Testament interprets that for us. Romans 8. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worthy with with the glory to be revealed in us. The sufferings of the present time. That's what marks this age, dear friends. That's what's always going to mark this age for us. But they're not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed. And then he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth not just the creation, but we ourselves. Like that's always going to be the case in this age. Always. But that groaning is going to end one day. We who had the first fruits grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know, when we think about the gospel, we think about salvation, we have a tendency to only think about, you know, when I die, I'll go to heaven, and I'll be with the Lord forever. That's true, but there's more to the story. There's more to the gospel. The gospel isn't just about justification. Justification by faith alone, as glorious as that is, that's one benefit of the gospel. But then there's the benefit of sanctification. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin, He's also delivered us from the power of sin. He's conforming us now to his image. And then one day, 
we're going to be raised bodily just like Jesus was. And then live in a new heavens and a new earth, transformed. This is what Paul is getting at. This is what Jesus is getting at. And so, to sum all this up, to sum it all up, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, who dwelled in unapproachable light with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity, the Son willingly humbled himself. He took to himself a human nature. He became fully human as we are, yet without sin. He took on the limitations of human flesh to be our representative. To do what? To do what you and I could never do. First of all, to obey God's law perfectly in word, thought, and deed. Then secondly, to pay the price that you and I deserve to pay, but couldn't pay in our, on our own. And that is, he goes to the cross. And on the cross there, he has poured out upon himself the righteous indignation and wrath of a holy God. Pays the full penalty for our sins, past, present, and future. And then, three days later, he's buried, he's buried in a tomb after that, he's dead. Three days later, he rises up bodily and triumphantly for our justification. And then he ascends into heaven. And now, the one who in Daniel 7 sits enthroned as king and who is putting all of his enemies under his feet will return the same way that he was enthroned in a cloud of glory to consummate his kingdom and create a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more suffering, no more tears, no more groaning. Forever. Now, Applications. Boy, there's so many applications. <laughs> First of all, what joy and comfort that you give us. The Lord has promised us this is what's going to happen. Right? And it's all, we are, everything else has already happened, so we know that this is, we know how the story ends. And it's glorious. And so no matter what you're going through here on earth, we all go through difficulties. We all go through trials and tribulation and distress. This isn't the end. And so we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. But also, notice believers here, we will go through tribulation. We will even go through great tribulation. We won't be delivered from that. I don't think that the Bible teaches that there will be some golden age on earth where we're set free from that, the golden age will happen after Christ returns. And neither do we see a secret rapture where we're taken away from suffering. There aren't multiple comings of Christ, but there's one coming of Christ. And when Christ returns, the entire world is going to know it. And it's going to be changed. So, Jesus then says, okay, that's, what is the sign of my coming? I'm going to come in the clouds. Nobody will be able to miss it. One coming, and this is what's going to happen when I come. But then, Jesus gives a lesson from the fig tree. 
Matthew 21, he cursed the fig tree, speaking of the fact that the judgment, that judgment would come upon Israel for their unfaithfulness and their unfruitfulness. Now, he uses the fig tree to speak of when judgment would come. When will this judgment come upon Israel? It will come when the fig tree leaves, when you see the, the, the leaves of the fig tree. You'll know that summer is near. So when you see that, so when all these things happen, all the things in verses 3 through 25, wars and rumors of war and tribulation, the abomination of desolation, then you know that the destruction of the temple is near. And to emphasize that point, he says, this generation, that is, you guys who are with me that I'm talking to, that generation will be alive at that time. It won't pass away until all these things have happened. It'll happen in your lifetime. So this generation, first and foremost, primarily has to do with that. With the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., that generation, Jesus is saying, that's how close it is. It's going to happen in your lifetime. Now, again, going back to this idea of double reference, there's a possibility here coming on the heels of describing his second coming at the end of the age. This generation could refer then to the generation that will be alive at the end of the age. Possible. You could be talking about that as well. Could be a reference to that. But the primary reference is, I think, the 70 A.D. And then he says, heaven and earth will not pass away, but my word. Or heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Wow. Who is the only one who could ever say such a thing? How about God? <laughs> Here you have God in the flesh saying, guess what? My word is not going to pass away. You can trust it. You can trust my word. This is what's going to happen. And so, verses 3 through 35, Jesus answers question one. When will the temple, temple be destroyed? In their lifetime. When was the temple destroyed? In their lifetime. Just like Jesus said. Question two, what will be the sign of the end of the age? His coming in the clouds of glory. Can you believe that? You better believe it. It's going to happen. When? When's it going to happen? Well, point two, no one knows <laughs> when Jesus will return. Verse 36, no one, not the angels, not even the Son, but only the Father. Okay, now I'm really confused. Because you just said that Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. Now you're telling me Jesus, Jesus is saying he doesn't know when he's going to return. How's that possible? Well, we remember that Jesus, the eternal son, took to himself a human nature. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, talking about Jesus, and then the word became flesh, becoming flesh. He, he assumed all of the limitations of being a human being. And so, as touching his divine nature, Jesus is all-powerful. All things were created through him, all the vast galaxies that you see, all the microscopic, everything. He's all-powerful. As touching his divine nature, he's everywhere present. As touching his divine nature, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. But as touching his human nature, he's not all-powerful. 
he was a carpenter, so I'm sure he was a strong guy, but there were limitations to his power. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He wasn't everywhere present as touching his human nature. As touching his human nature, he had to grow in knowledge. And he didn't know all things. And so Jesus is saying, as touching my human nature, the Father knows this. Now, this shouldn't rock us. This shouldn't put us back on our heels. We should actually be thanking the Lord for this. Because now we see the glorious truth that when Jesus says that he took to himself human flesh, he wasn't joking around. He really did. And he assumed all of the limitations of humanity. And so, as the writer of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who can really, because I'm adding the really part, who can sympathize with us. He knows what it's like to be human. He didn't take any shortcuts. He said, I'm limited by my human flesh here. And as one who is truly human and a true prophet, he refused to say anything that was contrary to God's word. You catch that? Or that wasn't revealed to him as a prophet. How different is that from us? <laughs> Well, I just think. <laughs> well, the Bible says, yeah, but I think. <laughs> and where we speculate, Jesus refuses to speculate. He assumes the limitations of his human flesh and works within the confines of that. And then he gives the example of Noah. We remember in our series in Genesis, Noah was, he was the righteous one on earth. Not in himself, but because God is the one who enables him to live a holy life. And he's a man of faith. He serves as a type of Christ. He's commanded to build the ark, but he doesn't know when judgment day is going to come. So all he does is, we know from other portions of scripture, he goes and he preaches the gospel. He warns the people of that day, turn, judgment is coming. But... As the text says, they were marrying and giving in marriage. They were going about their lives as if nothing was going to happen. And then something happened. And only eight were saved. Jesus is saying that's how it's going to be on the last day. Just as the flood came unexpectedly upon, Noah, upon the people of Noah's day, so too at the last day. People are going to be just doing what they always do. The gospel will go forward. We'll share the gospel. People, some, by God's grace, will come to faith in Christ, but others will reject it and keep living their lives, keep prospering, keep doing all the things that they do, and then all of a sudden, it's over. And it's over. The unexpectedness is obviously primarily with the return of Christ, but it can also be over in terms of when we're going to breathe our last. We don't know. So the question is, are you ready to face the Lord? The ark, the flood came unexpectedly upon the people of Noah's day, so too the last. And just as the ark brought Noah and his family safely through the judgment water, so Christ, the true ark, will bring his people through the judgment. 
And then we see the third point. We must be ready for Jesus' return. Verses 40 through 41, Jesus gives, <coughs> it's, it seems like a very odd example. Two men are in a field. One is taken, one is left. Two women are grinding at a stone. One is taken, one is left. And this grinding at the stone here, uh, commentators say that they were probably, they were very close, probably related or close friends. So what's going on here? Well, some say this, they talk about a secret rapture. And so one is taken secretly into heaven, the other is left behind. We're all familiar with the left behind books and the, uh, in the movies. But I don't think that that's what's in view in this text or any other text. Rather, the context of taking away and leaving behind has to do with redemption and then being delivered to and from judgment. And so in the days of Noah, some, eight, were taken safely through the floodwaters of judgment. Others were left behind to endure it. Or we could think of it the other way. One is taken into judgment and the other is left to experience redemption, new heavens and new earth, just as Noah and his family were. And Jesus gives the application. This is great for Sunday morning when you've heard a long sermon. Stay awake! <laughs> because you don't know when the Lord is coming. And then he gives a couple more examples. What about the master knew what time the thief was coming? He would stay awake and be alert. Can you imagine? And Nathan told his story. He, he was awake. <laughs> He's like, I'm, I'm going to hide out back here. Imagine the, 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 the thief says, he sends you a text. I'm going to come at 2 a.m. Okay? And so you're going to set your alarm clock for 1, 1.59. <laughs> Some of you might just say, I'm just going to sleep. You take what you want to take and... <laughs> But the point here is, you know, you got to be ready. Christ is going to come at a time that is not expected. And so, as I said, the, the, the title of the sermon, Ready or Not, Christ is Coming. He's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Am I ready? How do I get ready? Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your right standing before a holy God. That's how you get ready. Go into the ark, which is Christ, who will deliver you from the floodwaters of his judgment. Then we see the final example here, the faithful and wise servant. If there are ever two words, I'll see if you agree with me, if there was ever two words that you would love to say marked your life and that people would say about you. For me, it would be faithful, you know, hold fast to God and his word and the gospel and wise. I apply his word in my life. And Jesus says, he sees the master, he sets, he sets a servant over his house and the one is faithful, he'll be rewarded. But then he says this one he sees that the master's delayed, and he starts to beat the other servants. He gets drunk. In other words, he starts to, you know, it's the old thing. If the cat's away, the mice will play. We don't know when the cat's going to come back, so we're just going to do what we want to do, live the way we want to live, indulge all of our sinful desires, live for ourselves and like the rest of the world, 
And Jesus says what's going to happen. The master returns in an hour he didn't know. And verse 51 will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I don't know about you, but that is very frightening. And Jesus is talking about the world out there, but he's also, it's a message for within the church. We know that the wheat and the tares grow together. John, 1 John 2 says, those who went out from us were never really a part of us. Those who are truly God's people won't endure this. Secondly, hell is real. Hell is a real place. It's not where you're going to hang out with all your friends. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity. It's a place of outer darkness for eternity. It's a place where the smoke of their torment rises day and night forever and ever. You guys remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and he sweat, as it were, drops of blood? Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. What was the cup? If you've been a Christian for a while, you know that the cup, ultimately, it wasn't the nails and the thorns. It was the fact that he was going to endure on the cross God's wrath. He was going to endure the curse. He was going going to endure the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness. On the cross, he would be cut to pieces, as it were, and endure that weeping and gnashing of teeth that we deserve. So we don't know when Christ will return. He will return at a time we don't expect. So be ready. Be awake. Be awake to what? Well, the scriptures tell us that the devil roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will to devour. And so we know we can get so complacent. We forget about that, that our mortal enemy wants to destroy our souls and wants to destroy us. And so how are we going to be ready? And this is what Paul gets that in 1 Thessalonians 5. He talked, we saw earlier, we are children of light, so walk as children of light. And he talks about, put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, uh, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The breastplate, the, the internal organs, the important organs are protected through faith. Looking away from yourself and anything else and, and fixing your eyes on Christ alone and trusting in him and resting in him, looking away from yourself, and then the helmet of salvation, having your mind transformed, renewed, drinking in his word, thinking God's thoughts after him, the helmet of salvation, thinking about the fact that you were lost. You were like that one who was going to bear that judgment at the end, but Christ bore it for you. And now in Christ you know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you go forward now in the power of God's Spirit and in His grace to do what? To pray in the Spirit and to proclaim the gospel to the nations, the same gospel by which 
a sovereign, holy God saved you by. And this isn't just for individuals. Like, okay, this is what I have to do on my own. This is for the church. We can't do it on our own. We need each other. That's why Christ, that's why he calls it the body of Christ. It's only within the covenant community where we have access to the fullness of God's means of grace that we can be equipped to do this and where we have mutual encouragement and support to do it. So as I bring this to a close, are you ready? Are you ready because King Jesus is coming? Judgment day is coming. To be ready means you have to trust in Christ alone who bore the weeping and gnashing of teeth that will be hell on the cross. And so if you never have, I make a, a desperate plea to you today to do that. Come to Christ today. Escape the judgment to come. And if you have, Rejoice in the Lord for what he's done for you, how he saved you, how he will bring you safely through all these times of distress. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And you know that in Christ, the ark of our salvation, he'll bring you through safely through the floodwaters of his judgment. And let us now as the community, the covenant community, come together and encourage one another and spur one another on in the gospel to be ready. And in being ready, we go forth and proclaim this gospel to the world around us that they, that God could save them, deliver them from the wrath to come. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love toward us in Christ. Help us now, Lord, to live in a way that's pleasing to you. To take this word to heart, that we would indeed be ready, that we would be awake and alert as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.